This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We'd love to welcome you to Bite Into It. We are joined by Simon Leo Brown. Hello. And Joe Eden. Hello. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for joining us. We've got an excellent show for you this evening. We'll be speaking to some academic types from Monash University about an amazing um, haptic feedback device they've developed for the visually impaired community. So do stick around if you want to hear about that. We'll also hear a creative tale of fairies coming to us from the World Fairy Society. So if you're interested in um, expansive, immersive worlds and multi-platform experiences, then you'll want to know what's going on there. Before we get there, um, last week we our show was on um, the day that we had our election results coming out, and since then there've been a, a few things that have that have happened. But um, more locally in news, Simon, we've had something come out for the Victorian market. Yes, Fire Ready is dead. Long live Vic Emergency. There's a new app that really everybody should be downloading. Uh, it replaces the Fire Ready app, which as you know, it was the app from uh, developed, I think, by the C- CFA in response to the Black Saturday Royal Commission, um, and that was the app which provided you with uh, location-based uh, fire emergency information. Vic Emergency uses pretty much the same format, updated. Uh, much it's got responsive design. It's 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 a much schmicker prospect. But not only does it do emergencies, it does shark sightings, it does insect plagues, it does animal plagues, it does trees down, it does uh, power lines down. It, it does pretty much anything you can think of. So we're ready for the reckoning with we this are, app. If you. As long as the network stays up, we'll be fine because we will all know what is going on. Mm. Um, when there are frogs falling from the sky, when there's locusts, <laughs> go to your emergency <laughs> app. <laughs> and it will tell you there's fro- frogs falling from the sky. Excellent. Um, no, it's it's a really it's a, it is a really schmick prospect. Uh, you do have to create an account. Mm-hmm. Uh, to get the most out of the app because uh, you can create up to 20 personalised watch zones. Uh, one of the things that I like about this new app is that you can make the watch zones as small as a 500 metre radius uh, so that you can really localise where you want that information. It'll tell you about storms, it'll tell you about earthquakes, it'll tell you about any of the any of the regular emergency stuff, but there is a whole sort of sub-list of um, notifications that you can turn on and off for each watch zone. So that if is you, such a clever idea. It is. Yeah, because everyone has many locations that they're concerned about. It's not just your own home. It's, you know, people you love or other places that you might commute to and from and would be important in your life. That's right. If mm. you want to only know about shark sighting, sightings at the beach that you go to regularly, you can set up a watch zone for that. If you want to know uh, whether there's any, uh, I, I guess, uh, bushfire warnings for your regular camping site, you can find out about that. Uh, obviously, you can keep track of uh, where your friends and family live around Victoria. So it's it, it's nice having that that sort of flexibility in built. Uh, your watch zones follow you. Mm. So uh, whether you are using your phone, your tablet, or you're logging into the website, your watch zones will pop 
pop up ready to go. So do you have to have GPS enabled to do that or will they just use your mobile cell towers to triangulate if they can't get GPS? There is a watch zone that is based on your location. Right. Uh, but the watch zones themselves are are, are map based. So you, okay, you so create a point. To follow you. No, yeah. you, you create a point on the map and you say, I'm interested in around here. So obviously, yeah, obviously Much you better might, for battery life. Well, indeed. And you mm. might be interested in what's happening in an area that you're not currently in. So anyway, there obviously uh, summer for some reason seems to be the time when a lot of this stuff happens so now is a good time to download it play with it see what you want it to do for you and uh, it's of course free so there's no reason not to excellent well that is the vic emergency app get onto it and um in other news tinder have um just released an update today uh that will allow you to select more than man or woman as your gender. Um, They have now got 35 suggested genders that you can choose from, such as trans man, trans woman, transgender, gender fluid, etc., etc. Or if none of those apply to you, you can even type your own one in and you can now select whether you want to have your gender on your profile or not. I think this is a great update from Tinder makes it far more inclusive. Yeah, that's really great. And with so much competition from Grindr, they really did have to come up with a with a different, more sensitive response. I think they've they've gone out into the market and said, we want to be the inclusive app and we are for everybody. It's a very clever business decision and it's just a nice human decision as well. It's something that OkCupid's okay done well for a very long time, so it's good to see Tinder finally taking that on playing catch up so in another news item about um social media and how that's changing twitter has rolled out new and long-awaited anti-harassment tools now it's a particularly interesting time for twitter because uh they have just rolled their um chief operating officer who was um the person who's really been the fall guy for blocking trump's twitter account quite close to the end of the election um you can only imagine how uh, politically fraught that must have been when the election turned out the way it did. So another thing that Twitter has been um, taking a lot of flack for for a long time is how difficult it is to manage um, manage your experience on their site if you've put something out there that is attracting a lot of negative attention. Um, so one of their responses had been to start banning people who are doling out a lot of the attention, but that didn't always happen. And sometimes they were temporary bans, um, like in the case of the Trump account. Uh, but this is trying to put more power in the hands of individuals who are experiencing um, things on their platform that they want to be able to control. So they don't want to have to see uh, some of the really negative type of some of the vitriolic posts that could be out there. So you can easily mute any conversation now and I think the muting has become more powerful instead of muting just being something that doesn't sort of be in your face but you can accidentally stumble across so many things. So that's kind of that's kind of interesting. It's you can see that it would have been a big challenge to try and create an experience where you have your own um safe spaces. I'm pretty sure it's something that third party apps have been doing for quite some time. 
Yeah, but I don't think anyone has necessarily nailed the incidental coming across things that well. I I don't think it's easy to do. And Uh, I don't think Twitter have particularly paid much attention to reported incidences of abuse. Oh, that's a whole other issue Mm. too, you know, whether you have uh, robots monitoring cases of offence and whether when people initially submit a problem, it just goes to... Uh, to be fielded by people who are from um, a completely different location where they yeah. might not understand some of the sensitivities there or, you know, maybe the, the training hasn't been so good with how to handle different types of complaints. Um, it's It has been incredibly fraught and, you know, Twitter is not growing at the pace that it was before. They they really need to turn their ship around um, so they're, they're taking this more seriously now. It's, they're also introducing a hateful conduct reporting option. Um, so it's meant to more specifically call out certain types of, um, abuse. Um, so hate against race, religion, gender or orientation. Um, they're also adding a new extensive internal training, um, program for support teams who have to deal with this. And you can imagine how difficult it would be to sit looking at um, at messages of an antagonistic or hateful nature all day and not be desensitised. That must be a massive challenge for the sort of people working in this field. So, yeah, they're doing a lot of work on that. They're trying to do special sessions on cultural and historical contextualisation of conduct. Um, so, you know, they're, they're speaking the right... Uh, they're talking to talk, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Well, let's hope it works. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to see... Uh, this seems like a band-aid for a problem that Tinder are facing for reasons that people might be leaving Tinder, uh, not uh, Tinder, Twitter, Twitter. <laughs> excuse me, uh, for reasons that people might be leaving Twitter and there have been, you know, uh, several cases of people leaving Twitter voluntarily lately. What they need to do next is find a reason for people to join Twitter. Exactly, yeah. They're really struggling, I think, um They've, they haven't grown in key markets that they thought they would grow in and that they sold themselves to investors on growing in and they haven't been capturing young people. Snapchat came in and, and took over a whole lot of that ground that uh, that they wanted to have. Um, they have definitely responded by allowing people to publish media in different sorts of ways, by um, making animated GIFs playable on their platform, all those sorts of things. They've been talking about changing the character limit, you know, what do they need to do? They they do seem to be scrambling in the market. Uh, that's all that we have to print about Twitter today. All this week until Friday, November 18th, uh, Twitter R's drive programs will be live on location at the State Library of Victoria Forecourt as part of Melbourne Music Week. Tune in or head down daily between 4 to 7pm. You can catch Breaking and Entering with Lauren Taylor and Simon Winkler tomorrow and The Skull Cave with Paulie P and Nicole Tadpole filling in for The Ghost on Friday. Live performances across the week still to come from The Meanies, Remy, uh, Damien Cowell's Disco Machine, Napalm and Pillow Pro, plus a stack of guests dropping by to celebrate Triple R's 40th birthday and the launch of the exhibition. You'll find a daily program listing on the Triple R website. Coming up tomorrow, 
on Breaking and Entering with Lauren Taylor and Simon Winkler is live music from Pillow Pro and Napalm with Hiatus, Coyote and Remy. Guests include Etta Curry from Loose Tooth and Emily Ullman from The Toff in Town chatting about the Melbourne Music Week live music safari. Plus, the one and only Brian Nankervis joins Lauren and Simon to host an audience quiz about Triple R past and present. So that will be worth tuning in or going along to. That sounds incredible. I think I'm going to be down there myself. I don't want to miss it. It's um, 7.19 on Triple R and we're really happy to, walk, happy to welcome into studio Professor John McCormack and Dr Chitai Gonku from Monash University. Welcome. Thanks, guys. Thank you. So... John, you're the director of Sensi Lab, which is an interdisciplinary makerspace at Monash University, and you're currently an ARC Australian Research Fellow. A former, former, former ARC former, Research former, Fellow. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, how quickly those pass. They do. <laughs> and... Uh, Shatai, you've been working as a research fellow at Monash University since January 2012 and uh, during your PhD you investigated how to present graphics to visually impaired people and you have developed a novel user interface um, in conjunction with your supervisors uh, and you published this in your PhD thesis yeah. and I think it's the follow-on of this work that we're here to hear about this evening. Yeah. So welcome again. Thank you. Now, you're sitting in front of um, an interesting couple of devices. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what we're here to speak about this evening, which is touch ring and uh, and what it is? <coughs> yeah, maybe, like, I'll start with giving the context. Sure, sure. So, as you know, like, we use graphics pretty much everywhere, like floor plans, map, maps, graphics, um, graphs on text uh, textbooks. But when if you're blind, there's... Uh, the way you access them are usually using like embossed media so that you can touch them and feel them. However, like they're, they're quite expensive to produce and mm. you can't actually have a textbook which, which has like, all the pages with braille and the graphics in embossed media. Mm. So we want to find a practical way of uh, solving this problem and we ended up with an uh, iPad application which is basically displays the graphic on the screen and when you touch if a shape on the screen, it will tell you what it is, and uh, it will also play a sound so that you know you, you you keep touching on it. So in front of me, I got my like iPad app open, and it's showing a graphic from a student um, a kid's tech, um, storybook, mm-hmm. like George and Martha for, by James Marshall. And so now I'm going to touch George and George the hippopotamus holding the hose and chuckling to himself. So like it, it tells you what it's doing, and I'm like. Um, going to touch the, a tree. Tree. So it will tree. play the sound so that <laughs> you'll you'll kind of understand what you're touching. Yeah. So <clears throat> this is good, but the problem with this one is the sound is a bit. Um, it will it can annoy you after a while. Mm. That's why the touch ring comes into play. So what it does is you just put it on your finger. When you touch it, when you say tree, it will start buzzing. So then you will have um, a bit of understanding of the outline of the shapes and it, it will kind of complement the whole system so that you don't need to get and buy those uh, expensive tactile graphics or other type of media. So for our listeners who can't see what we can, um, there is a little device in a docking bay here. So it's um, it's a ring and connected to the ring is something that's smaller than a pager. Um, I don't know how to describe that size. What would that <laughs> size be? It's, it's about a 50 cent piece size and it's a bit thicker than that. And it's got um, sort of haptic feedback. So that means it's creating vibrations and things that you can feel when you're yeah. wearing the device. Yeah. 
it's a classic wearable type of feedback mechanism. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and is that a charger that it's sitting in? Yeah, so the, it, it sits on top of a charger. So this will be the kind of, uh, those two will be the whole package and people can carry them in their bags. So like when they want to use the application, they just put the ring on and then start exploring the graphics. So are there different types of feelings that you can get through the ring that you can program? Yeah, so it, it's pretty much like similar. We're using the same uh, technology that Apple Watch uses. So yeah. like it's like constant buzzing, different levels of buzzing and also haptic patterns like double tapping, triple tapping. So, yeah, it gives lots of different haptic feedback. Fantastic. So how is it actually reading the image? So, yeah, the image is actually um, created by using an authoring tool. So it's an online tool that everybody can use. They just put the, uh, like, the actual visual image as an underlay and then trace the boundaries of the um, important bits. Because, like, when you think about, let, let's think about the Melbourne network train map. So there are lots of things, small labels. If you put it, put everything on the graphic, it will be a nightmare for, for blind people because it will be cluttered and it will make sound and start to say anything on the screen. So it, it's very hard to understand. So that's why, like, and it's the same case for other types of graphics, like tactile graphics. The uh, transcribers, they usually filter out some of the information. So one uh, network map can become maybe five or six different tactile graphics and it's the same case for our application so the people who are authors they create the graphics in a way that they just emphasize the important bits on the graphic okay so the ring isn't actually reading the screen it just knows where it is uh, actually I, I, ipad knows where your finger is and ipad tells the ring to do like like depending on what you're touching so like if i when i'm touching the tree it says okay um vibrate like double tap and if I'm touching George it says okay make, make a constant buzzing so this is a, a simple I guess proof of concept of, of what you could do with this but you could probably take this a lot further when you when you take these these principles of um, of what you can do with your ring device and how you can program the the iPad and the ring to work in in concert yeah yeah right okay. so I mean the, the haptic feedback is the actually the output part of it mm. but it also has the accelerometer gyroscope and also the touch um, uh, interfaces. So, like, mm. the, the next uh, bits in the development is, like, using gestures on the ring so yeah. that when you um, explore in the graphic, you can do some custom actions, like maybe getting more detail. And also, another extension we're thinking is, like, the ring can be actually used for mobility purposes. Like, imagine when you're walking and there's a cafe next to you and you just want the ring to tap you when you just arrive. So we can do that with the ring. And mm. it's it's like um, it's more it requires more development and other things and yeah. that's that's the bit that we're working on now. So um, what sort of re user research have you done to get yourself to this point? So like this whole thing started with my PhD thesis and during my PhD I just explored, okay, if I display the images on the screen, or even simple shapes, people, will that, will people get the, um, will they understand that? So like we displayed and showed like basic shapes, rectangles, triangles, lines, and like we didn't say anything to them and they just explored the uh, shapes on the screen with sound and haptic mm. and at the end of the studies they say okay this is a rectangle, this is a circle and so th they could identify the shapes and uh, I think with the help of the touch ring it will improve significantly. 
So when we look at the the base problems that you're trying to solve here, obviously uh, visually impaired people have had some very sophisticated systems for a long time now in in order to read a lot of things and they can do that really fast and they've had a lot of um, peripherals that you can plug into computers and bring up braille interfaces and things on that. Um, What we haven't seen is people uh, interacting very well with flat screen technology and... um, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting to see the idea of being able to ha- interpret something on something that actually isn't otherwise, uh, what's the word for it? Touchable. Yeah, <laughs> Sensible. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, th- that's one of the issues. I don't think this system is a system which will replace all the other technology. It's, yeah. it's like a system which complements it. For, for instance, if you think about like braille displays, mm or refreshable braille displays, they're only one line, and you can explore whatever you're exploring with just one line. Mm. And with tactile graphics, you have to carry them around. They're physical media, and they're pretty heavy. Like if you put, I don't know, 50 of them together. The uh, I think the point of this application is is a bit, um, you start with this and end with this. Like, for instance, you start with a graphic, and you get the, a bit of understand. Okay, in this graphic, there are trees, there's George, like there's Martha in the hammock, or, but you don't understand it fully. So then you can actually look at the tactile version of it, which you get more information if you like, and then come back to this, mm. and you, you now know what what the objects are on the on the screen, and you can find things and use it as a reference. Mm. So there's oh sorry. Uh, well, there's obviously a fair bit of investment that has to go into converting something into this format and feeling like it's worthy. Do you feel like that's, um, that's, you know, where you want to take it to be a new publishing stream? Or do you think that something like machine learning could fill that gap between translating content into something that could then be understandable? Yes, yeah, so, uh, I mean, we, 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 we working bo- on both type of uh, approaches like yeah. uh, the first one is obviously the easiest one like yeah. you just have people do it yeah. but the, the way uh, we do it is like we provide them a very simple authoring tool so mm-hmm. that they can just trace the shapes and then create the graphic in, in like I'll say five minutes but then we're also doing the uh, another research project uh, by another PhD student on Rada at Monash which is finding out uh uh, whether we can convert floor plans automatically yes, to, yeah. to this kind of uh, graphic. But the problem with that is, like, as you know, like image processing is very hard. And also, you have to do it for every different type of graphics. Like, if you say, yeah, there's a floor plan from, I don't know, realestate.com, uh, it converts them very good. But then you go to another side and find, I don't know, another, maybe someone decided to put the um, background as black, so it won't work on it. So, but I think in the future, I see it as like there will be lots of uh, tools which will semi-automate the transcription and then it will give it to to an author so that they will fix it. Mm. So it will maybe reduce the production time into minutes. So speaking of, you, of the future, Professor McCormack, this is obviously going to be very useful to a lot of people. What's your plans for actually getting it into the hands of those people? Yeah, so we, we, we've developed this prototype and we've been through quite a few iterations with the design because we wanted something that actually people would feel proud to wear rather than often with, you know, people with 
working with disabled technologies, it's often very utilitarian and it looks ugly. So we wanted something that looked cool. Um, and so we think we've, we've got there as best we can for the size of the electronics that we have to put in. So we're looking at trying to do a crowdfunding campaign now to bring it to people, um, globally, um, because we think there's a market for this internationally. There's, there's over, I think, 200 million people blind worldwide. So, uh, that's the next step for us is to try and launch a crowdfunding campaign and see what interest we can get to really push the project to the next level where we'll be manufacturing them. What's the feedback been from people who have used it already? Um, it's been it's been great. I think uh, they they keep wanting more features put in, and I think one of the things that we really love to be able to do is because you're working with an electronic device, is have the information being updated. So if you're looking at the map of a train station, for example, you want to get instant details about what trains have been cancelled, or if you're uh, looking at a cricket pitch, you want to see who the cricketers are and what where they're playing. So the, we the people we've tested it out on say, look, this is great, but it would be even better if it could do mm. this. So we're, we're starting to get lots of requests for features now, and it's just a matter of trying to fulfil them as best we can. But I understand you've created an open API, so hopefully other people jump in and do that for you as yeah, well. Yeah, that's the, that's the plan with when we release the ring on, in the crowdfunding campaign, is to also open up the software so that it's not just us who's developing for it. So people who are developers making games, for example, can add haptics to their game so blind people can enjoy the game as much as sighted people can. So what are you using to communicate from the iPad to the ring, for example? Is oh, it so Bluetooth or is yeah, it... Bluetooth. Yeah, Bluetooth. Bluetooth. Yeah, Bluetooth. Yeah. So, you know, how expensive is that sort of connection is that sort of connection to build? Like, you know, you've got some Bluetooth stuff, you've got some haptic sort of things, you know, what is this hardware setting setting people back in in broad terms? Uh, so I mean, we we developed all the hardware by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a collaboration with uh, uh, we got partners who will do the electronics bits, mm-hmm. and also we got people working on the design of it. So like it's we're not using off the shelf products. Right. Okay. Just, so it's yeah, it's, yeah, it's been custom. custom. It the electronics has been custom made. Right. Um, and you know we get it all manufactured in China. So mm. we send the boards come from China. The the aluminium ring comes from China. Wow. Um, it does look a bit bling, doesn't it? It looks a bit like you know retro futuristic, like yeah. disco. We may yeah. offer rose gold. Yeah. Eventually. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's like designed in Melbourne, manufactured. Uh, yeah, in that's yeah. right. You've got to keep up those Melbourne design standards. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. All right, well, I'm sure we'll have to uh, tweet out some pictures of this to help fill in the gaps for some of our uh, non-visually impaired listeners. Um, but for the visually impaired listeners, it'd be so interesting if you uh, if you tweeted at us, you know, whether you've, um, you know, got an interest in this sort of thing and uh, if you've seen anything like it before. And Yeah, it'd be great. I know we've got a really active community in Melbourne. Yeah, so if people um, would like to try it, if they want to get in touch with us, we're looking for people to test it on. So... If you, you know, tweet to us, we'll, we'll try and get in touch with you. Yeah, that's, um, Sensi Lab at Monash University. Is that the best way, uh, uh, way to, to find it? Tweet to Lab, yeah, yeah. And, or just sensilab at monash.edu will get to us as well. Thank you. All right. Thanks, thanks. so much for, um, thanks. telling us all about that this evening. It's 7.38 and we would love to welcome into studio, uh, Jamie, uh, Hugh. Hoke. Hoke. <laughs> Sorry, I knew, I knew I was going to stumble over that one. Okay. Um, she's here to discuss the World Fairy Society game ahead of the Monster Works conference. Welcome, Jamie. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, you've come in here and you haven't come alone. You've come with a whole lot of beautiful-looking um 
pieces of art and a very mysterious looking box and all these things. I think we'll get to that in a moment. But um, can you tell us a little bit about what is the Westbury Ferry? Uh, the Westbury Ferry Project is a multi-platform world building project. So it's an initiative funded by um, Screen Australia and the Canadian Media Fund as a part of the Digital Incentive, Digital Interactive Incentive Scheme. So it's a co-production um, between Australia and Canada. Um, so it's a narrative that takes place across multiple platforms. So we use social ma- media to... Um, drip feed narrative threads across different platforms and people have to go on a bit of a investigative mission to try and work out who is the Westbury fairy and how does she fit into all of this evidence which has been discovered by the World Fairy Society who I'm here representing today. I love that the moment you follow the World Fairy Society on Twitter, uh, you get, and that's fairy with an F-A-E-R-Y if people looking for it, um, you get a mysterious message, you know, inviting you into this world and on the journey to help solve a mystery. Yeah, so um, people are brought into the world initially through uh, some video. Uh, So we've got a few different video components. There was some kids about three weeks ago who accidentally captured a fairy on their smartphone when they were mucking around in the cemetery and they went home and uploaded it to their YouTube accounts and it got like 350,000 views. <laughs> so um, and then a couple media outlets picked it up, like the Huffington Post and the Daily Mirror, like really reputable sources. And, uh, <laughs> and um, from there, uh, the World Fairy Society uh, emerged uh, to present this evidence they have been sent. So it's a box of artefacts um, that are essentially clues that sort of explain an old his- historical story from the mid-1800s and it follows a journey and a folktale of a fairy that arrived to Australia. Wow. So, yeah, the, the game-like component is that it's... Um, it's an investigative clue hunt. So people, it's almost like an alternate reality game in that it takes the community to sort of work together and investigate the clues and then build their own theories and narratives and bring their own folktale and history and story to what will become the Westbury fairy story. I'm so, so happy to hear this because in a world that has delivered us Pokemon Go, yeah. um, it's, you know, we have been lacking kind of really rich, immersive storytelling. It's been very one-dimensional for a little while and uh, there does, there feels like there's this potential to um, not just be immersed in a story but also have that sense of community built around it. Yeah. Is, was that a key part of your game design? Yeah, absolutely. So the game is nothing without the input that is brought to it by the community. So there is a really interesting clue hunt. Like each clue leads to another clue. So there is a very fun game-like quality to it. People have to work out who is this Westbury fairy. But when they bring their own theories and comment on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook, that's when the world starts to build. And that's... um yeah, it, it does take the community, essentially, for it to work. We might hear a little teaser from this, just to set the stage a bit more. My name is Willow Beck, and what I'm about to show you is going to blow your mind. Something you never could have imagined was real, but it is. My name is Arthur Beck. I am a scholar. I am also the world's leading expert in fairies. So I've been in possession of artefacts which prove that fairies live among us. <laughs> The evidence contained in this box is extraordinary. Oh, should we show them the tea caddy? No, no, no! No, 
Don't. Not yet. Not until we know who we can trust. Grandad spent his entire life trying to prove the existence of fairies. He's been ridiculed, kicked out of academic circles, had his research shut down. We have to help him unravel this mystery. If you can figure out how all these pieces of evidence fit together, then please, please tell us. It's so beautifully told. Thank you. No worries. What does does augmented reality bring to it? Yeah, so the clues that were sent to the World Fairy Society in the box that they talk about, um, they have been scanned and put up onto Instagram. Um, Then we're using an augmented reality app called Erasma, and Erasma effectively acts like a magic wand or a revealer of extra levels of secret hidden evidence. So the audience goes onto their social platform of choice um, because the evidence is spread across all most platforms, um, brings out their smartphone and does what we call screen-to-screen augmented reality. Um, So, yeah, it's just you have to use phone-to-phone or phone-to-screen and the layers just start to pop out of the evidence and you start to reveal extra video and rich media and 3D elements and other things. So, yeah, jump on and have a go. It's really fun. It sounds really fun. So in front of you, you've been kind enough to bring in a key piece of, you know, primary evidence right here. We have a box <laughs> on the studio table. Uh, may we have a peek inside? Yeah, so inside the Ooh. box is... Um, if you jump onto the World Fairy Society YouTube, you'll be able to watch the video that introduces this box. Um, but inside are these artefacts. So there's a diary from a guy called Philip Ripton. There's an old mirror. There's a tea caddy. Um, there's a, a marriage certificate. Uh, so there's all these artefacts that are like a trail, like a paper trail left behind, um, you know, in, in the story of the Westbury Fairy. And so people just need to go through and use augmented reality and try and work out how they all fit together and tell us, like, what is the story of the Westbury Fairy and how does she fit into all this evidence contained within this beautiful box? So were you inspired by um, other uses of media out there when you when you started creating, you know, how you were going to build this experience? Yeah. Well, actually, we were inspired. We had come from a background in film production yeah. and also digital media. So um, my company uh, and I have produced like a number of feature films in the US and Australia. And what we found fascinating about this concept is that it actually builds the community and the story and the audience before creating the work. So mm. this work will culminate in a published book. So people that submit stories will be also in the running to have a chance to be published in a book and from that point onwards we might decide to then create a film or another television project or something out of the work but um yeah so it was really that idea that it's fun to build a community and an audience for a narrative before writing the script that inspired us to yeah take it's, this path with it's a fantastic platform project. It's, it's borrowing concepts from things like escape rooms which are so hot right now which is yeah. really interesting but instead of being inward looking it actually um seems to be designed so it can be expansive and and bring in creative ideas yeah. is it difficult to plot out a story that's searching for references so broadly uh we've started with a you know a spine of a story um but really it's we've tried sp- purposely to put a lot of 
symbolism and, you know, little different stories from different folk tales and folklores. And I can't reveal them all now because some of them haven't been released to the public yet. But um, we're trying to create this world that creates story starters for people. So people can bring their own idea of what a fairy is or a fairy folk tale or how fairies ended up in Australia or, you know, where their roots in Ireland um how that you know how migration patterns from Ireland to Australia and how people brought their own ideas of folktale and story with them so yeah um so there's an incredibly large array of multi-platform components that you've involved in your story. You've got a book and a film, a viral video, an e-commerce store, um, using Reddit and Twitter and Snapchat and Facebook and Instagram, all of the social medias, you know, um, and the occasional one that I haven't heard of, like Wattpad. What's Wattpad? Yeah, so Wattpad is one of our largest platforms. Um, Wattpad is pretty massive, actually. It has 44 million users. Um, it's a company that started out of Toronto, which happens to be where our co-production partners are. And I did go over there and meet with them. But they're like a large company. They're called like the YouTube of books. So it's a platform where people read and write each other's books. And there's a lot of collaborative writing that's happening on that platform. Um, so there's two main platforms where you can submit stories for the Westbury Ferry. There's the World Ferry Society Wattpad account and then there's our worldferrysociety.org um, and both of those are places where you can submit a story but if you choose Wattpad it's a it's an amazing platform where people can actually collaborate and have conversations and critique and help each other with their stories so it's a really great platform for world building um, you see a lot of fan fiction uh, and fantasy type stories happening on that platform yeah it's quite fantastic actually it's That's good to great. be working with them so your partners in Canada are Log Cabin but your Plot Media Australia yeah. have you done anything like this for clients uh, hmm, we've done a couple um yeah, multi-platform works that have been uh, in exhibition spaces before. Uh, we did one for the Tamora Aviation Museum a few years back where uh, it was like an app that was delivered on an iPad, so it was a bit of storytelling mixed with history and delivered on an interesting technology. But in terms of a true, you know, transmedia or multi-platform game, um, this is our first one, and it's pretty exciting for us because we've been making films and we've been making technology products, and now we really get to... Uh, combine the two and explore that convergent space where narrative is starting to take new forms online. It really is just emerging right now and um, to see something that's so complex uh, but sort of seamless in the way you've involved so many technologies, it's it's really, it's got a lot of charm, this story, and uh, and I've only seen what you've released to the public <laughs> so far. So wish you all the best of it, Jamie. Thanks so much for telling us about the Westbury Ferry. Thanks so much for having us. It's a pleasure. And if you wanted to find out more, the Instagram account is the key place to go, which is at World Ferry Society. Excellent. I do highly recommend that you go and check that out. And in the spirit of the World Ferry Society, I thought that this was cute. For our weird news of the week, we have Google casting a spell on millennials with Harry Potter voice controls for Android. If you're an, an Android, there are there are quite a few things that you might uh, like to lord over other phone users, and this should definitely be way up there with them. If you're a fan of Harry Potter... You might know that they've combined um, three new Harry Potter spells with their voice commands for Android phones. So if you want to activate a light, 
um, a true Harry Potter fan would know that you would say Lumos. And you can say, okay, Google Lumos and your light will come on on your phone. Similarly, you can do the silencio thing to turn off your volume or um, you can use Knox. Um, I can't remember what Knox does because I'm clearly not the target audience for these features. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't think that uh, Avada Kedavra is coming to the platform anytime soon, though. So, look, that's one for you to enjoy. <laughs> I'm obviously not the target audience either because I logged on to BuzzFeed today and I was like, why are two-thirds of the stories about Harry Potter? <laughs> <laughs> why not? Why not, I ask you. Uh, so something we haven't mentioned yet this week is that uh, Facebook has been um, in the news a lot in the wake of the election results. Coming up to the election, people did talk a lot about whether um, Facebook's influence of the news, um, the news that people read in their kind of Facebook wall stream would um, be having an impact on voters. And that was a concern before the election. And afterwards, I think people feel like there's a lot of news bubble going on and there's a lot of fake news thriving on the platform uh, and they've really had to come out and answer that a little bit. Simon, have you heard many people speaking about this issue? Look, I've read a little bit about it. I Mm. think it's interesting that uh, when the election happened and the news came out on Wednesday, I was sort of wandering along thinking, wow, you know, there is a bubble that I am in and I am seeing my friends talk about this election a certain way. But on this very same website, there are millions of people with exactly the same user experience in their own bubble talking the opposite way about exactly the same issue. Mm. Um, Some of them might even live on my street you know, it's it's it, it really brought it home to me how, um, yes, you know, Facebook says we don't, you know, we don't decide to show you only stuff that you agree with, mm. but you know, it is self-selecting in the fact that you're you self-select your friends, you self-select your um, you what accounts you want to follow, and Facebook. Facebook are vehement in the fact that they're not a media organisation. So they're not actively trying to show you anything different. In fact, they stepped away from having any sort of editorial control and changed everything to be automated so that they could even even more strongly declare that they weren't making any choices about this news, despite the fact that we know code is not agnostic. You know, code is built in with the opinions of the, the authors of the code. It's uh, It's a pretty tricky space. I found it really interesting too to read today and I'm just trying to find the article but I can't write away. But, you know, the authors of these fake news websites who are basically just kids in it to make a buck, um, they've found a way to, you know, that they've found somewhere that Google AdSense money actually means something to them. You know, they're in countries... Um, where that is the case, where to most publishers that money doesn't really mean a lot. Um, but to them, they, there are big bucks involved and they were just following the the money and they found that fake news about Trump was just much more highly shared than mm. fake news about Bernie Sanders or fake news about Clinton. Um, and so 
you know, that is obviously there's a really active cohort of people online keen for this content um, and, you know, there has been some discussion about whether, like, the way that it's presented, it looks respectable um, with the proliferation of news out- outlets. Not everyone knows what is a respectable outlet and what isn't. Um, and especially if you are a Trump supporter and a lot of that support is built um, on the idea that the the mainstream media is lying to you, then it is the alternative media that you're you're obviously going to trust, and mm. so you know it is. It's really interesting to see, uh, and in a way, you know, it's going to be so hard because what is fake news? Yes, really? yeah, and and when it comes down to um, science issues rather than election issues, when it mm. comes down to climate change, you start having even more trouble because um, there are denialists who say that you know my denial is as valid as your science, and how do you how do you police that on a private site? Um, it's very naive for these publishers to be saying that they take no responsibility. I mean, writers have been positing a future like this, a future of um, curated news for a long time. George Orwell did it. Neil Stevenson did it very well in the Diamond Age where he looked at a society that didn't read the same news and talked about how actually the elites created a universal news because they realised it was important that people weren't accessing separate types of um, of, of sources, they needed to build a coherent worldview to be able to solve worldwide problems. Well, it's important to remember that the idea of objective journalism is a really modern one. You know, it was created basically in the early 20th century by the wire services because up until then, like, you know, newspapers used to be owned by unions or churches. They used to be, you know, very much mouthpieces of a particular group. Uh, but when, as, you know, world wars and these sorts of, imp- these sorts, of, well, as world affairs became more important, these, uh, these newspapers needed reporters overseas. The wire services provided these news right across the board. The only way they could do that was to write it straight. Thus the idea of independent objective news you can't see me waving my fingers in the air in quotation marks <laughs> uh was created and you know we've been wandering away from this idea for a long time now obviously completely making something up is the antithesis of journalism but um we're not we're, we're certainly i don't think heading ever going to get back to a point where there is a a, a central media that everyone knows and trusts if there ever was such a thing. That is a dire prognostication, but um, I find it hard to uh, rebut right now. Hey, it's 7.59, so it is time for us to get out of here. Um, the lanky Anthony crew has sauntered into studio, so it's time for us to move. Thank you for tuning in this evening. Thanks to our guests, Professor John McCormack, Dr Chatai Gonku and Jamie Hugh. We've been bite into it and we'll be back next Wednesday evening. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. 